Welcome to the Everyday Journey podcast. I'm your host, Vasily Miazin, coming at you from Bangkok, Thailand. The idea behind this project is to interview people who are outstanding in their field one way or another, casting a spotlight on one character at a time. My guest today is a Missouri native, an athlete training to be a ninja, previously a senior developer at a tech startup. A few years ago, he left San Francisco to travel around the globe and perform enduring physical training. He then settled down in Southeast Asia for a while, enjoying a new life by the beach. Let's find out how it all happened. Without further ado, I give you Matt Barnicle. Hello, Matt. Hey, Vasily. Welcome to, to my uh, recording studio in Bangkok. Yeah, thank you. It's really nice. Uh, this is a pretty good setup you got here. Um, for the sake of our dear, dear listeners, we're not running the AC to avoid the background noise. Uh, so you can yeah, we're, we're appreciate... Yeah, tough, we're toughing it out. We're toughing it out, yes. Um, it's uh, January 7th, uh, 2018, and unlike my typical recording environment in New York City, the weather is very hot here. So um, might as well enjoy it instead of a snowstorm. So you are originally from Missouri, uh, Jefferson City. That's right. Yeah. What was it like growing up in that part of the world? Uh, yeah, so Jefferson City is the state capital of Missouri, and it's a sort of medium, small town, 30,000 people, I think, at the time when I was growing up there. Uh, pretty conservative. Um, a great deal of the jobs are either state-run or somehow um, related to that in, in a way. And there's a few industries and so forth, but um, it's a conservative overall town. Uh, nice place to live, actually, if you want to categorize that somewhat subjectively or even possibly bordering on objectively. It's safe. Um, not a lot happens there that's uh, too bad. Not too much drugs or crime. Um, people get along pretty well, um, but uh, you have the occasional uh, misanthropic uh, redneck that you have to deal with. Uh, and uh, otherwise, though, it's a pretty cold, pretty cold town. How does it fare compared to, well, where is it in, in the scale of uh, zones of the United States? It's, is it Midwest? Is it South? Is it something? Yeah, it's uh, officially called the Midwest, which I've always thought is a strange word because there's nothing uh, West about it. Really, it's, it's middle. It's actually more east than it is west if you want to look on the map, but yeah, officially it's Midwest, it's west of the... You don't question it typically uh, if, you, if you're from the States, but everyone yeah. else... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if I, if I say to someone when I'm traveling, I'm from the Midwest, and they've never heard that term or doesn't know what it means, I explain it and it, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense as a concept, I think. But I think it goes back to the pioneer days, basically, where when they went west, west, you know, the, the settlements were all on the eastern coast, so anything west of that was exploring the west. This is how far they got when they named it like that. Yeah, Perhaps, yeah. yeah. I'm not actually sure where the etymology comes yeah. from. So this is Midwest, uh, associated with uh, Michigan, uh, Illinois. Uh, yeah. Ohio, uh, Illinois, Iowa, Arkansas, Nebraska, Kansas. These are all of my um, neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so growing up there, what did you aspire to be? Uh, yeah, difficult question. Um, I was a really nerdy and uh, sort of uh, geeky kid, so I had a ton of different things that I liked, a lot of different aspirations. 
Um, I, I can tell you what I was into from an early age. I got into computers pretty young. My parents opened a computer business in my town in 1981. It was actually the first retail computer store in that city. And they sold the first generation of personal computers, like even before the IBM PC. Things like the uh, Apple um, IIe, uh, even before that, uh, there was something called uh, Texas Instruments. Uh, our first computer at home was a, a TI-99-4A. And these were, if you're not familiar with this style of computer, they're not like the modern computers. Uh, they didn't have internal storage. Uh, there was no uh, connected display to them. You had to have, like, plug in an external like, television data. and so forth. Uh, you would use uh, cassette tapes, uh -huh. like actually like a, a, a simple tape recorder and you would just store it on cassette tapes. And it sounded like, uh, if some people still remember, like a modem, right? And the, those, those recordings. And yeah, like, yeah, if you were to play it back, it would sound something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I had something like this. Uh, ZX Spectrum, uh, 48 mm. kilobytes of, of RAM and, and, and cassette storage. Oh, that's yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah why, why would you ever need any more than that? 48 kilobytes, 48 kilobytes. so you kilobytes, need it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so... This obviously had an influence on you um, going forward, to which we're, we're going to come back to that to that part. So, growing up around computers, most likely you would answer like if someone, if your parents, friends ask, would ask you, Matt, who do you want to be? What do you want to be um, when you grow up? What, do you, what would you tell them? Uh, well, I back then when I was doing this, uh, I was really into computers, but also into video games. I love playing video games as well. Uh, I had a couple of hobbies besides that, like I had a baseball card collection, I had a BMX bike. Uh, I used to love riding my BMX. Uh, maybe I fashioned myself being a, a pro BMXer at some point in the future. Um, as far as ambitions for career or uh, dreams, big dreams of mine, I didn't have that many actually when I was that age. I didn't really think, I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up and I didn't imagine myself being working with computers later in life. It just never occurred to me. Um, I was also a big music fan, so I guess maybe I assumed at some point I would get into music. Excellent, this is my next question here. How did you become interested in music? Yeah, so I've always been interested in music uh, since as young as I can rem remember, just being fascinated by things I would hear on the radio. Uh, you know, everyone loves music. It's one of the most universal of all art forms that, that it seems like just about everyone appreciates. But um, I remember, like, that was an emotional escape for me. And I could always just uh, play some... I would usually tape record things from the radio, like uh, make compilation greatest hits from my favorite tracks, fa favorite tunes coming on the radio. And so I had a collection of these tapes. And uh, for whatever mood I was feeling, or maybe a road trip, or uh, home listening, or energy, or whatever it was, like I had a variety of different uh, mixtapes that I made myself. So I would just go and listen, put, uh, put on one of these tapes, listen to them, and uh, just you know drift away into the music. Um, yeah, I, I did. So I didn't mention, but you are also a DJ in the past. You were a DJ. Um, yeah. Once a DJ, always a DJ. I, I suppose so. Uh, mm -hmm. You could even say that I was a DJ uh, back then, the, the original bedroom DJ, mm -hmm. but uh, only a crowd of one. Very much reminds me of uh, my uh, history 
before I, I got seriously into music. Yeah, compiling yeah. my own uh, mixtapes and and maybe finding two different versions of the same song and then cutting the first one in the middle and then recording the the ending of of the say acoustic version of that song. You know, just joining them like this, you know, remixing with with re interesting. Re yeah, that's yeah. I, I had never something like that never occurred to me. Uh, we did these things though. Sometimes I think we had a school project once where you would make you would have a fake interview with a, a real character. Like let's say you were interviewing the president, someone in popular media that everyone knew who they were and kind of knew something about them. Uh, okay. And you would ask them fake questions, and then the answers would be little clips from bits of music. So I remember that being one of my favorite things to do back when I was that age. So this is what we're doing now: a fake <laughs> interview with a, with a real character. Um, and then, uh, how did you get into startups in, in the technology industry? Uh, so, like a lot of Americans, um, or even just, I guess, all over the world, I don't think this is unique to America, really, but after growing up in graduating high school or middle school or whatever it is they call it in different parts of the world, um, didn't really know what to do, but I knew that everyone just goes to college next. So I followed that path. And there were certain influences in my life, uh, family and possibly teachers, who uh, I guess always gave me the impression that I would end up doing something in the math or engineering field. Because I seemed to excel in uh, things like algebra and geometry and logic. Uh, things of that nature. So I just sort of um, followed, you know, that. So I just sort of followed uh, their lead and uh, applied for engineering school. And uh, I think I took uh, basically two semesters of that and was really uninterested. I think it was uh, electrical engineering, actually. Uh. And wasn't really interested in the classes that was part of the curriculum. But um, there was one class in the curriculum that was a programming class. And while I'd had a lot of experience in computers, using computers, I had not had prior experience actually computer programming until that class. So I found that I was actually quite good at it. It came naturally to me and I was sort of enjoying it. So um, I started out in one university that was in my hometown, Jefferson City, and transferred to a larger university, um, University of Missouri, Columbia. Uh, the uh, Mizzou Tigers, as they're known. And it's their sports team? Yeah, the Tigers is the mascot. So the Mizzou is the nickname for that school, uh, University of Missouri-Columbia. Spelled like uh, truncated Missouri? Uh, yeah, with Z's. With Z's. Yeah, M-I-Z-Z-O-U. Okay. So when I transferred there, I signed up for computer, per for, um, computer science. And this is how it all started. Yeah, um, and then of course you went on to uh, to become a programmer, a developer, uh, an engineer. All this, all these words that describe the same profession. Uh, that, let's talk about the good and the bad of that profession. Uh, what is what is uh, obviously good and what is, I guess, uh, subjectively bad. Yeah, of course it all is. Uh, so what was good for me. Well, there was, a, there was a lot of things that it suited my personality. Uh, at the time, I was um, very much controlled by social anxiety and fear of 
being in public, uh, afraid of interacting with people. I kept to myself a lot. I had a hard time making friends. I didn't have a lot of self-esteem, didn't really believe in myself. So my computer kind of became my best friend all throughout my childhood. And it just kind of like continued that way through my uh, young adults and even into well into my adulthood. And so during college, uh, I would go to school and take my classes. I would go to my job because I had to, um, I, I basically paid my own way through college. I had some, um, some loans, but also paid for personal expenses and apartment and so forth with uh, uh, money I made from my job. So it's a money maker. Yeah, at the time, it, it, it wasn't a moneymaker for me. It's like it, I was just working like at a grocery store. Uh, but uh, it suited my personality as a, as a loner, basically. So I always had something to do if I could play at home on my, my computer. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. my college years, I spent a lot of time at home on the computer, and that's where I really started developing my you know, ninja coding skills and stuff like that. And you felt good about it? About and I enjoyed it too, yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was doing something, uh, I was accomplishing something, I was getting better at something, I understood it. And I've always loved uh, puzzles and, and logic and thinking about things and constructing and, and making stuff. So, you know, computer programming is a great outlet for that sort of thing, for that sort of mind that loves puzzles and, uh, you know, IQ games and this kind of thing. Because writing a, writing a program is... It's like one big logic puzzle that you're fitting together with all these different pieces and all these different. You have an objective parts. in mind, and you have the means to get there, and hopefully, right? And, and then you, you have infinite possibilities of implementing implementing that path to. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah. someone with a lot of imagination. So it's a way to express your imagination and your logic and your, you know, reasoning skills and kind of combine all those things together. It's it's uh, it definitely tickles something and. In, uh, you know my personality type and, and you think software engineering is real engineering just like bridge building and, and you know, uh, construction and this this kind of a uh, you know, physical world engineering you think, you think it's fair mm -hmm. to, to call them all engineering uh, I do actually yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there was a time when I questioned that or, or I thought that maybe it was silly to use the same classification terminology but the more I got into it in later in life, especially, uh, and especially the last uh, six years I was working at the Silicon Valley startup. Uh, I saw that software engineering actually could be treated, could be uh, approached from the same sort of perspectives as traditional engineering fields. Um, now, just like engineering, just like let's say not not to say engineering, but just like you could, you could build a house, okay? Mm -hmm. Anyone can build a shack in the backyard. Does that make them an engineer? Anyone can build Arguably. a dog house. Yeah. Anyone can build a dog house. Mm -hmm. um, and you could even say that anyone could build like a, a log cabin or something like that if they just like mm -hmm. achieve some blueprints. Or pitch a tent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you want to go. Are you an engineer if you can pitch a sure, tent right, in, yeah. in less than five minutes? <laughs> so at, at some point there, there is a distinction. And I think it's the same with software engineering. Uh, you can fiddle around with computer code and you can write software that works well. Mm -hmm. You can write something that's very, very intricate and something complex and large and, and um, you know, uh, distributed, uh, all sorts of things. But it doesn't mean that what you wrote 
could be considered, uh, you know, an engine, a feat of engineering, right? So when I think of uh, traditional engineering fields, you think of standards of quality, and you think of uh, practices that have developed over thousands of years, right? So of course, computer engineering is uh, much younger than that, and some of these processes are still actually emerging and still solidifying in the field. And there are still uh, new thought leaders that are bringing these things to the fold. So that now we have things like uh, uh, test-driven development, domain-driven development. Um, I, I don't know if I would include agile in this mix because I think that's more of like a so style approach. of engineering mm -hmm. approach. But um, the approach to the actual engineering, those are things like TDD, and uh, SOLID, for example, uh, if you're familiar with SOLID. I don't think so. SOLID is uh, it's an acronym. Uh, I'll, I'll make one attempt to see if I can remember this. Um, <laughs> Let's see. S is a single use or single responsibility. Uh, o is the open-close principle. L is Liskov substitution. Uh, I is uh, interface or interface dependency or something like that, or just interface, something with the interfaces. And D is the dependency inversion. Um, so this is something I, I only learned in the past few years when I was working at uh, Trulia, my last employer. And I would consider this, for example. Describe it so it's interesting to, to our least uh, tech-friendly. People, yeah, people not familiar with this. Okay, yeah. so these are mechanisms that, um, to make it as vague as possible, to make code more infallible, less prone to bugs, uh, more easy to extend and add on to, and easier to test and verify the outcomes of the, um, of the testing. And uh, I would have to go into all the nitty-gritty details of what each of these different uh, parts of this uh, acronym do in order to ensure that these things happen. But uh, this to me for, is, is an example. It may not be the example, but it is an example of how software engineering has is, is been evolving and is becoming, coming into its own as a, as a legitimate field of engineering where there are standards and uh, uh, expectancies of outcome if you follow the right procedures. Comparable to other kinds of engineering. Yeah, so, so when, you, when you expect uh, a building to be made, there are certain specifications, certain expectations you have that it will be able to withstand a certain amount of weight and possible wind, uh, storm, or even uh, you know, uh, uh, a large object running into it, like a, like a car or a plane or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not going to fall because they're built in certain ways that we can measure uh, what impact, uh, what the effects of the impacts or the external, or external influences have on the building, uh -huh, right? So, so you can expect that it's going to withstand. It's all, yeah, it's all, it's all calculated and it's all known through these, these engineering practices that have been developed over thousands of years. Okay. So the bad and the ugly of, of programming, obviously one is it's very confusing. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. So it, it, it is totally a rabbit hole and it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and there's really no end. As soon as you reach the end, you find out that that you can make it bigger. Like if you're the, one of the people that's on the, the frontiers, like the, the very, if you're a vanguard of the very, very outer reaches of engineering, you're pushing it forward and you're finding out that there's still more. 
So it, it's, it seems pretty much infinite. And especially if, you, if we're still talking about things like uh, artificial intelligence and um, um, robotics and the things that, were, that are still emerging that we still have not entirely mastered. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, there, we still have a long way to go. It, it, at this point, it seems like an infinite field. So I would say for those who are who want to make a quick buck, it might not be might not be the industry to 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 join because it takes takes a little bit to 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 get going. I mean, it takes a considerable amount of time to become proficient. Uh, and also, it's it's a sedentary lifestyle, right? You, you yeah. spend a lot of time yeah uh, slouching. So and, it's great in a lot of ways. Like if you want to make money, it's a great profession. If you love it, first of all, like I would I would say don't get into computer programming unless if you really enjoy it. Because if you don't, it's going to be really taxing on you. It's going to be draining. And in fact, even if you love it, it could end up being draining. And that, uh, the, the, the prevalence of burnout is quite high in the software engineering industry. Like I've already gone through two, two periods of burnout. One was in 2004. I quit my job for almost a year. Mm. And I came back and got back into it slowly. And same then, job or you started on uh, uh, Well, uh, same career. Same career. Different mm -hmm. actual job. Mm -hmm. And uh, my second one was, you know, three years ago when I started my nomadic adventure and, you know, yeah. cha changed my lifestyle at that point. Okay, we're going to get to that real soon. Um, so, I guess uh, maybe we already answered this, but should more people become programmers, in your opinion, or learn it? Yeah. Uh, so, you know... We that, have enough. Yeah, yeah, I'd say we don't have enough. Yeah. And from, from everything that I can see, from my history in Silicon Valley, from also even traveling the world and going to different countries and talking to people there about, um, so about what I did, my background, and, and them sharing their experience of their country, and uh, you know, what the tech field is like there and so forth, uh, it seems to be still in quite high demand all over the world and only growing. So I think it's a great profession to get in still. And there's there's um, there's a, a what do you call it a, a shift towards mechanization that's happening in in basically every industry. And there's some experts predict, predicting that something like seventy percent or eighty percent of all jobs will be mechanized by the year twenty forty or something like that. So, you know, a few you know just only a few decades from now. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the jobs that are going to be uh, mechanized, roboticized, computer programming is very low on that list. Like even things like doctors are going to be phased out to a degree. You follow this subject, uh, this the latest you've heard? Uh, I'm not up on the very latest, mm -hmm. but I do follow it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, so that's a great one, deal of... One good reason to... One more reason. Yeah, one, to, just add, yeah, add, add that to your list of reasons why I still think it's a good idea to be a to software engineer if you want to pursue that. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, um, let's uh, move on to, I wanted to just touch on um, your experience living in California. This is where you became uh, a prolific uh, developer and this is where your career blossomed. Um, you don't live in California now, but I think for, for a lot of people, California is kind of this magical place. With it is. <laughs> with uh, wine and, and... The uh, land of fruits and nuts, yes, as it's called. And, fruits and nuts. <laughs> nuts and bolts and fruits. Um, depending on the area, more of one category than, than the others. 
Um, so what was it like? Uh, you lived in LA, you lived in San Francisco. Mm, should people try living in California? Is it worth a visit? Uh, well, yeah, as you know, um, mm -hmm. having lived there yourself and in, in, in both of the same cities that I lived in, we both lived in Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco. That is true. We met in Los Angeles. Uh, met in Los Angeles mm -hmm. as DJs, going back to that conversation. Mm -hmm. That's how we know each other. Um, I think California is a fantastic place to live. Uh, the state offers a huge variety in culture and lifestyle, outdoors, recreation, um, uh, financial opportunities, yeah, food, uh, just whatever you're into. And the big cities especially, like if you want to live in Los Angeles, people say, well, okay, so what can I do in Los Angeles? And the answer is whatever you want. Like yeah. there is a little bit of everything. In every single... Uh, sub-genre or, or sub, uh, subculture, uh, sub every single subculture is represented to some degree. Like even, you know, Los Angeles and California in general is not known for, you know, country people, country music or country lifestyle. However, I can guarantee you there's country bars in downtown Los Angeles where people from a country background love the music, love the lifestyle. Maybe they grew up on a farm or something like that. Go and congregate and they hang out and, and there's community. So with all this being said, you left California because you didn't feel like it was the promised land for you uh, and you got into training. Maybe there's a lot in this transition in that you could talk about, you know, leaving your job, uh, leaving San Francisco and getting into physical training. Maybe so let's, let's uh, maybe cover as much ground as we can here. Yeah. So I actually, um, where my training began was when I was in San Francisco and I was working at that last tech job we were talking about. Um, for the, let's see, from the years 2000 through 2013, through the end of 2013, I lived a, a very party-centric lifestyle. I first discovered like underground raves in, in the year 2000 when I was living in Los Angeles. And uh, it was blown away. It just it totally blew my mind. And I made a, a, a radical shift in my uh, lifestyle choices and dove headfirst into that. Started going to those kinds of events for the next few years. Uh, went to Burning Man for the first time the following year, 2001. That was my first year. Uh, ended up going to Burning Man 10 times total. 10 times? Oh, 10, I... yeah. Uh, okay. Wait, 10 or 9? What? Lost track. <laughs> I mean, nine or more ten. Than me. one, one of those more two. Than me. And uh, discovered the Psytrance scene in uh, 2003, and started attending those events religiously. What is Psytrance for those? Who, oh, okay, Psytrance. Well, first, let, let's define rave. And, ah, and, and so, so we're going that. You're going down that far, huh? Okay. So uh, rave is um, has its roots in the as far back as the late 80s, actually. And these started as warehouse parties, like underground illegal warehouse parties, where people would get together and dance to um, electronic music or music that was primary, primarily electronic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of the early uh, stuff would be um, like Acid House, and even before that, uh, EBM, which is like an offshoot of industrial music. Um, so kind of like a, a very electronic-oriented music that's made for dancing and 
people DJing this stuff and uh, kind of like the culture involved ecstasy and ketamine and various uh, substances to allow people to stay up all night all weekend long partying in these For purely uh, practical reasons absolutely uh, otherwise how would you stay up for so long <laughs> <laughs> yeah so a rave is, is a, essentially it's a movement it's a culture that involves listening appreciating following certain types of music which is dance music electronic dance music and then occasionally perhaps not every day but maybe every weekend for some attending a large or well, various size events where people like like-minded people uh, congregate and yeah, dance together. And yeah, that, that's that's a fair explanation. Mm-hmm. I was maybe getting a little historical there, mm-hmm. but I think that's a pretty good definition. It's uh, it's it's a community. Like the, they call it the electronic dance community. With no um, no rigid rules though. You don't have to be part of the community. You can occasionally pop in. Sure, uh, sure, yeah. There's no membership card. Yeah, I think you'll find actually yeah. in, in the uh, EDM scene that uh, pretty much everyone is welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that everyone shares is the love for the music and dancing. So that's what brings people together and makes this, you know, drives this whole So I'll make the connection here scene. between your personality, uh, someone who loves programming and secluded lifestyle and kind of being in your own, in your own head, and joining something that is very welcoming and op- open, that is an easy, easy um, sort of society, easy uh, crowd to, to join, right, for someone like you. Yeah, um, so I, th- I guess if you, um, let's see, if I want to be open here, uh, I would say that there no such thing existed for someone like me. There was no such thing that was easy and open to become a part of. Um, due to my personality, I was so closed off and withdrawn and like low self-esteem that when I first started going to these events, uh, I felt super uncomfortable. And like the only time I would open up is if I would like, you know, pop a pill and, and loosen up quite a bit, or you know, possibly have a few Red Bull vodkas, which was my favorite drink at the time. Uh-huh. All of this is Just long in the past. Ne- needing, yeah, it's definitely all in the past now. I don't, I don't drink anymore. I don't, don't do drugs. I, I'm very clean lifestyle now. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I needed this kind of thing to kind of like, or at least I thought I needed this at the time to loosen up and connect with the experience. Uh, so that really opened me up. And then I, I slowly, step by step, actually felt like I was getting involved and in actually being a part of this whole movement, this whole community. And once I actually felt sufficiently enough part of it, then I um, took the next step and traveled and went to these festivals all across Europe in 2004. And then I came back in 2005 to LA and started my DJ career then. And then continued and I, I DJed for the next almost 10 years. And I think that my last gig was in uh, early 2014. I think I only had one gig that year. I was already pretty much tapered off by then. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, and, that's, it's, and that's the year when you started training. Yeah. And yeah, coincidentally, or perhaps not, that is the year that I started training. Um, so. The, the, my personal arc through the electronic music scene was, uh, uh, in the beginning, um, elation, excitement, uh, newness, uh, just, it, it was awe-inspiring and uh, uh, opening, mind-opening, uh, heart-opening, all these sorts of things. Like, I went through this blossoming period in my life, and through DJing, I actually found uh, something that I had never experienced before in my life, which was... 
a feeling of um, peer respect, uh, peer recognition. Uh, I was actually offering something of value to the world and getting uh, feedback, response from that. And that started making me feel better about myself. That started making, allowing me to grow as, as, a, as an adult. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting all this stuff out of it for a long time. And of course, I was loving the music. I loved the experience of DJing. DJing is, uh, uh, you know, as you know, it can be uh, one of the most exciting, fun, uh, life-affirming uh, activities you can engage in. You're, you're just a full immersion and you're expressing all of your energy through this music as you're playing it. You're getting, you're getting this feedback from the crowd and you're together, you're united in this celebration of dance and music and, and enjoyment of life. It's, it's, a, it's an incredible experience. And so I was, I was quite hooked on that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, towards the end though, towards the end of my career, uh, I kind of started uh, or stopped enjoying the music I was playing as much as I was before. It didn't have that uh, excitement. Um, I started experiencing some like declining uh, health issues that, I, that were uh, uh, growing slowly over a period of time. And I found the, like, the chemical use, the alcohol use, I think primarily at that point it was alcohol. I wasn't really doing so much drugs towards the end. Um, I would just kept drinking to regain that sense of excitement. And I realized finally that basically a lot of what I was doing was trying to overcome a sense of lack that I had in myself. Like I, I was actually, you know, sort of had a baseline depression at all times. Mm -hmm. And these experiences, the parties and the DJing got me out of that momentarily. It gave me something to look forward to. It gave me a sense of uh, fulfillment. It made me feel alive. But when I wasn't doing these things, uh, I would easily kind of slip back into my feelings of isolation and depression. So um, to sort of summarize, what ended up happening was uh, the way that I was approaching my life ended up having diminishing returns. And I wasn't getting this uh, enjoyment in this uh, like huge explosion of positive energy and good feelings anymore. It stopped happening or it started like uh, petering out. So by the end I would go out and I would drink and I would party and I, but I just wouldn't have the fun that I used to have. So I would just crash more and ended up feeling worse and I, I developed insomnia some about midway through this whole thing. So I started sleeping poorly and then worse and worse and worse. And um, we talked about the Silicon Valley job. So I had this job that I was going to on the weekdays and I had this party lifestyle that I was doing the weekends and uh, I was just getting eaten alive. Yeah, I want to point out to our listeners that not everyone could uh, combine this uh, so the full-time job, uh, highly logical and in, in, uh, you know, um, actually straining but also demanding right and yeah. also partying uh working as a dj uh stimulating yourself uh recreationally staying up all night never sometimes. never actually losing uh a gig uh whether it's be a day job or or a dj gig uh due to some kind of irresponsibility so so you had a lot of um you, what do we call it mm, you were very disciplined uh with yourself 
uh, yeah, while true. enjoying mm-hmm. all those things. Yeah. But this also takes its toll. And maybe people who yeah. were a little bit more relaxed and happy-go-lucky didn't care to keep it, their jobs or didn't have a job. So, uh, maybe they, yeah, they sure, were less, sure. much less stressed mm-hmm. out doing the same things. But you were doing everything. You were doing. Uh, you were with the squares. You were like a, a straight-laced uh, person. And also kind of a hippie. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. All at the same time. So yeah. That's in, a dual lifestyle. Yeah, dual, or, no, no, triple. Triple, or, yeah. yeah, possibly. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So yeah, I, I started. Um, well, I'd say it all came to a head basically New Year's Eve, two thousand fourteen. I went to a festival in Brazil, a well-known one called uh, Universo Parallelo, uh, which means parallel universe, mm-hmm. uh, it, and it is kind of a parallel universe, aptly named. Uh, but a huge celebration that happens on a beach in Brazil, in Bahia. And I went there in hopes to recharge and get renewed because I was feeling so run down and stressed out and not enough sleep and overworked. And, and I wanted to like rejuvenate myself, have a nice vacation in Brazil and come back renewed for the following year in 2014. And the exact opposite happened. I went there and I got sick immediately. Uh, I, I slept poorly the whole time. Uh, I, I was boozing it up, I was smoking, uh, and I came back feeling actually worse than I did when I left. And for me, that was a big wake-up call. So I just decided immediately, I, I, I drew a line in the sand. And I On said, the beach, in Bahia. In, in Bahia. <laughs> <laughs> Though it happened actually when I came back to San Francisco, okay, well, which, on, which on, fortunately they big, have their own beach. beach. They have their own beach, yeah. So uh, I made this firm decision that I was going to clean up my life right then. So I quit smoking, finally, for good. I'd tried several times before, unsuccessfully, and this time I was able to do it. Happy to say it's been now almost four years now, no smoking. Um, Yeah, it will be at the end of this month. It'll be four years exactly. I quit drinking for a while. Uh, I completely quit partying that year, 2014. I don't believe I, I, I only attended one party where I was invited to DJ. Yeah, simply because it was a charity event for someone I knew. Yeah, charity. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, uh, completely cleaned up, and uh, I hired a personal trainer, went to the gym, and um, trained for the next three months at the gym, and got really serious about fitness, and then kind of made an abrupt shift in my life towards more fitness activities, outdoorsy kind of uh, recreation. Uh-huh. Before that, you, you were not really into fitness. Uh, not so much, no. Uh, I I actually started working out a little bit at home in 2013 because um, I wanted to sort of like improve the shape of my body. I wanted to get a little bit more muscle tone and so forth. Up so, until that point, yeah. Up until then, there was you, you, not much of not anything. Much yeah, of, of yeah I, I'd been snowboarding a few years prior, but not like uh, going but, to the gym three times a week. No, yeah, no weightlifting, no strength anything. training, mm-hmm. nothing like upper body oriented. Yeah, that's never been part of my life. I, I've I've gone to the gym a few times at different periods in my life, but for short periods of time it never lasted and never really made me real gains. For extra impactfulness, can, you, can we reveal your age uh, so for maybe for inspiration? Yeah, so, sure. So uh, I'm 43 years old, mm-hmm. uh, just turned 43 this past November, uh, November 2017. And in relation to your age, uh, your gains are Quite remarkable, I'd say. Yeah. You you probably are. I mean, you, you say it yourself. You're you're in better shape than most people half your age. Right? Yeah, I would say so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, four years' time, basically, if you want to if you want to start 
in uh, late 2013, early 2014. Let's say early 2014 is a better sort of demarcation point. So if you want to start then, it's been four years, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm in better shape than most people at any age, including people half my age. Yeah. Okay, and the training led you somewhere. I'm, 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 I'm leading you on. You're leading me to this uh, next question. Yeah. This is a leading yeah. question. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. So after I made this uh, shift in my life, um, I had also, you know, going back to an earlier question about my, my childhood dreams, there was one consistent dream that I had had my entire life, and that was world travel. So I had never really let go of that. And I'd been wanting to live this digital nomad lifestyle for the past, like, 10 years. DM, baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, since oh, I first DM. discovered about it, like, in 2004, 2005, uh, you know, Tim Ferriss, 4-Hour Workweek. I had the idea, you know, actually, before I ever read that book. But then I read it and saw that someone had actually done this and he laid out a blueprint. Mm -hmm. So that, that just burrowed into my mind and stayed there for the next 10 years. Yeah. So I've been planning my escape ever since then. And I finally, through my uh, Silicon Valley job, made enough money, got some stock options, and um, the company IPO'd, uh, cashed out a bit, and then I was able to head out. So I had uh, basically one goal in mind when I left, and that was... Uh, to heal because my health conditions were, were so bad that I was constantly going through this daily uh, struggle with insomnia and uh, brain fog and low energy, inability to concentrate, confusion, disorientation. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty severe actually. Like, I, I, I suffered like 50% cognitive impairment if I was just to put a number on it. Like I, I lost half my brain processing capabilities. I couldn't remember things anymore. I had a hard time speaking. I literally like would fumble over my words. I would, I would mum, I would jumble up words like someone who was really, really intoxicated. And this happened with, somewhat regularly. It kind of scared me. I mean, I was, I was worried that I might have undergone some kind of, like silent, undetectable stroke or like brain tumor or some some weirdness. So um, I, I wanted to basically travel, live out that dream, and also to just kind of like focus on self improvement and healing and getting better. So um, I, I kind of stayed to that to a point, but then I kept slipping back into old habits. And then uh, 2015, only three months after I left the States, I had to come home because my dad was dying. Uh, he had been d diagnosed with COPD, um, which is a, a lung, lung disease, a broad categorization of lung diseases. And he'd been on an oxygen tank for the previous year. Um, the whole family assumed he'd live much longer. But uh, yeah, three months after I left, he started declining rapidly, so I rushed home and uh, saw him one last time before he passed, and then um, spent time with family for the next few months back home in Missouri. And then during that time is actually when the real shift in my life happened. And I saw American Ninja Warrior on TV for the first time. It's a TV show for anyone who doesn't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's based on a Japanese series called Sasuke, which is uh, like 20 years old now. I'll try to add some links to the show notes. And, and it's, it's basically like an obstacle course fitness, uh, extreme obstacle course fitness endurance challenge. And you're not racing anyone. You are basically just going through the course by yourself, but you are competing 
on uh, both time and distance that you make it through the course against the other contestants. Um, so it's, it's based on things like, uh, if, if you've heard of like Tough Mudder, uh, Spartan Race, stuff like this, these are more well-known sort of things. It's something like that, where there's a lot of upper body strength. It's like if you were to combine rock climbing with a bit of gymnastics and a bit of parkour, you'd get something like Ninja Warrior, right? Mm -hmm. So I saw this TV show for the first time when I was in Missouri, um, spending time with family during this period of time after my dad passed, and just blown away by the TV show. And I just knew that I wanted to try it out. So uh, a couple of weeks later, I did. I flew to a gym in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and started training there. And that kind of like began my Ninja Warrior aspirations. And so you, you you aren't trying to become an actual ninja, just yeah you could say yeah yeah yeah. Uh, is there is there a direct connection with the ancient tradition and teaching of being a ninja in, in this television show? I wish there was. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool to it's be an actual, to ninja. be an actual ninja. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it's more it's more of like branding that they chose because Suzuki was the original name. Mm -hmm. So every single there's several of these competitions throughout the world now. There's Australian Ninja Warrior, UK Ninja Warrior, Spain, Germany, mm -hmm. Indonesia, um, Vietnam. Speaking of Indonesia, so you happen to get really close to, to, to your dream uh, of participating in in the American Ninja Warrior. This time was yeah. So uh, so part of my nomadic not lifestyle. Uh, is I'm moving around a lot and I'll stay in one country for some period of time or sometimes I'll be moving you know, quite rapidly. But uh, I was staying in, in Bali for about 10 months uh, starting 2016. And while I was there, I saw this advertisement for Indonesia Ninja Warrior. And I had already been training and wanting to be on an American Ninja Warrior. So, so this was already accessible to me right here. It was close. And uh, I thought, wouldn't that be fun to just go and see if I can try out for that, see if I can actually uh, compete. I had no idea if I could. Everything was written in, in Indonesian, so I couldn't read it. But uh, I happened to uh, get in touch with someone on their Facebook group, asked them if I could come and try out, and they said, yeah, sure, come on. Uh, no guarantees because you're our foreigner and we have you know, regulations, but uh, just come give it a try and we'll see what happens. And I was like, okay, that's good enough for me. So I flew out to Jakarta a few days later, literally like three days within discovering this for the first time. I, I tried out for the course and I passed and then uh, stayed in touch with the guys and followed along with uh, all of their Instagram postings and stayed in contact with, with the producer. And then when the time came when they were uh, doing the invitations, um, I wrote a message and got a response and they said, yeah, you can you can come. We We would... I'd uh, love to have you compete here. Uh, but the one stipulation was that uh, there's a cash prize for the winner, and if you were to win, uh, you have to donate it to a, a charity. And I, that's, that's fine with me, you know, because actually I'm not even doing it for the money, I'm doing this for the experience. Uh -huh. so, so yeah, I, I flew to Jakarta again a few months later and competed in America, uh, Indonesia Ninja Warrior. And how far did you get in the... Uh, regrettably, course. not as far as I would have liked to or thought I was capable of getting to. Yeah, it was actually kind of a, a letdown to, to actually um, fall when I did. 
I fell on the first stage, and there are five stages total. What did you learn from that experience then? Well, I learned a great deal. I learned um, some training methods because uh, I didn't have access to a ninja gym at that point anymore. When I first started this journey, I, 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 was, I started at a ninja gym. Mm -hmm. So I was training on ninja obstacles. So if you want to train for Ninja Warrior, well, all you have to do is find yourself a good gym and then train the obstacles that prepare you for it. So I was having to adapt and figure out how I could condition myself in other ways. Uh, so I actually started training parkour. I learned parkour that year. Mm -hmm. uh, and that helped with things like uh, balance and uh, agility and, uh, um, let's see, like speedy decision-making um, when you're jumping and grabbing and climbing stuff, right? So these are all like useful skills for Ninja Warrior. And I learned various like rock climbing techniques for conditioning your grip strength and your uh, upper body strength. Um, and through the uh, actual experience of being there, I learned things like, well, what it's like to be on TV with you know TV camera pointed mm. at you, someone first putting, time, putting yeah. a mic in your face. Yeah, that's the first time it's ever happened. Someone interviewing you. So I, I got that experience and just to, to feel what that was like to be the center of attention and all. And also, I mean, I was I was an anomaly. I was the only foreigner. Um, they called they called me a bule in Indonesia. That's the word for us. So I was the only bule uh, among like 550 participants. So it was quite a, a you know a comfort zone expanding experience to go through as well. Sort of uh, conditioning me to be uh, in in unfamiliar territory and um, still go through it with a degree of confidence and uh, hopefulness. Um, and as far as the failure goes, as they say, there's no such thing as failure. There's only learning from what you, learning from your failures. Mm -hmm. So I learned that I needed to spend a lot more time doing balance related stuff because I fell on a balance obstacle. So I have been a lot more into the parkour training and anytime I get a chance doing things like balancing on handrails and like um, uh, pistol squats and things I can do at the gym that require a lot of you know, uh, balance with your, with your legs. Um, and I learned how to accept defeat, uh, especially in a situation where I had a great deal of my hopes invested in this experience. Um, you know, to be perfectly frank, it was crushing when I fell down. I really assumed and imagined that I would be, make, I would be one of the people making it to the final stage. I'd been training in such ways and like I had the upper body strength, I had the endurance that I could make it through all of these obstacles but that's on a good day, let's say. Mm -hmm. But everyone falls from time to time, even the best. So uh, I fell very early on, and that really you know, messed with my head. It took me a month or two to really process and get over that and come to finally uh, resolution with it. But I think still, even, even though I would have loved to win or get to the very end, do a lot better than I did. Of course, that'd be amazing and that'd be an unforgettable experience, but at the same time, there is something really valuable in learning how to accept when you fail or when, when you don't 
succeed at what you're trying to do or, or what you expect you'll be able to do. Well, not just that, but like... Well, yeah, well, if, if, if people uh, follow you on Instagram, uh, and if they don't, they should, uh, nomadic.ninja. That's right, yeah. They will see that you present yourself in all kinds of different situations, hanging off trees and uh, cliffs and, and different kind of real-life uh, object, physical world <laughs> objects that, that you wouldn't think about climbing and holding on to. Uh, and those are pretty epic. And but th those are not just to show off. They 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 also they represent how you how you train right? and, and how you spend your your time traveling. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. So um, I had this opportunity or um, an idea to keep training back when I first started to in Albuquerque two years ago. Uh, it's something that I really wanted to pursue. I wanted to get a lot better at, and I wanted to actually compete. But I didn't want to give up my dreams of traveling the world, so I thought of how I could combine those things together. And I had the idea of training while I travel. But like I said, there's not ninja gyms every place you go, so I had to start getting creative. And in a lot of times there's not even gyms. Or if there is, because I'm on a traveler's budget, I don't have the money to be spending on gyms all the time. So I just started using my natural environment. And when I say that, I mean just, just about anything. If I'm in nature, I'll be on trees and rocks, uh, sand, whatever's there. If I'm in a city, I'll be using buildings and walls and um, um, fences and things like that, or chairs and tables, um, just about anything. So when, I, when I'm traveling, I'm looking around my environment and I'm sizing things up. I do it everywhere I go now. I'm walking down the street. I did it as I came to meet you today. Mm -hmm. I was looking at all these different things that I could have fun like climbing on. So for me, it's a way of uh, uh, getting more physical with my world. And, and that's also part of my healing, is doing more physical things and less mental, right? Uh, it's retraining my brain in, in you know, kind of like recalibrating things, which is like a healing process. It's uh, training and I'm actually using my muscles and, and pushing myself really to the edge of my abilities because I'm in actual dangerous situations a lot of the time. If I lose my grip or I slip or something like that, I could actually get hurt. And in some cases I could break a leg, I could... So why do you think it's worth it for you? Because uh, you wouldn't recommend it to just everyone. I definitely wouldn't recommend this to everyone. Uh, I have been training myself and building my strength and also my, my mental strength and mental endurance to be able to tackle these challenges progressively now over three, over three full years. Um, and I've also kind of been this way my whole life. I've always been like jumping around stuff. Uh, this whole uh, rock scrambling, I don't know if you know what that means, but rock scrambling would be like if you go out to a, um, a river and a lot of times there's rocks like jutting out all throughout the river, right? Uh -huh. And the stream flows through and around the okay. rocks. So you're jumping around from rock to rock and you're climbing on some of them. It's sort of like, it's sort of parkour-esque. Uh, but I've been doing that sort of thing my whole life, so I already have a bit of like a conditioning and training. And then now I have the actual like strength and um, uh, skills that I've been developing. So I don't do something unless if I am absolutely certain I can do it. The element of danger comes in in that 
even though I know I can do it, if I were somehow to fall, it could be devastating. So it, it is kind of like uh, stunts in a way, where I'll be hanging off the side of a building, um, you know, one or two stories up, or I'll be climbing in rafters that are like 40, 50 feet in the air, uh, hanging down from them from one arm. Uh, you know, sort of an extreme sport, actually. And I do this as part of my training, for one, but also to test myself. I'm trying to condition myself to face fear more and more. Uh, one of my greatest uh, goals in life is mastery of my own fear. So the, the more situations I put myself in where I'm having to face this fear and confront and overcome it, the greater I am at, at being able to master that fear. Um, I think this is something that both of us share. You know, mm -hmm. it's just um, uh, different people have different ways of doing it. And travel actually is one of the things that does that for me. Um, you're often finding yourself in foreign, unusual, weird environments sometimes. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how to go f where, get where you're going. You don't understand the language. You can't read it. No one understands you. And sometimes you feel lost and anxious. But uh, the thing is, fear, the more you confront fear and the more that you face it and, and learn to, to uh, handle it, deal with it, the more you're able to do that in any situation. I think that's what I found to be true. So I'm putting myself in these extreme situations as a ways of, uh, you know, fast-tracking uh, my th that process of the, the mastery of fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I see it is that in theory, a lot of people know these things, and you you knew these things a long time ago. All, all this uh, sort of uh, pearls of wisdom, um, philosophical you know, ideas. But to actually live them, to, to physically be in situations where you experience them and, and you, you test your mental ability is a whole different thing. You know, that, that's why, even though it sounds like a lot, of, a lot of people would say something like what you just said, you actually also experience this. Uh, yeah. Well, you have to face these things and, 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 and practice uh, dealing with them, not in theory, but in Yeah, in the, in the real world. Yeah, yeah in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I've been progressively desensitizing myself to greater and greater risk. Uh, and I think that's kind of like, you know, that's the process everyone goes through, no matter what they do. If you're, if you're a stock trader, you, you do that in, in, the, in the, you know, stock market. If you're, I don't know, a, a racer or something like that, uh, like let's say you race motorbikes, you're doing the same thing. Like you work yourself up to it. Salsa dancer. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of fear involved. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe, maybe there is. I, I actually. No, yeah. I think anything, uh, salsa or any dancing included, that you start later in life mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. you're not a teenager is something like that. Yeah. Cause, sure. Cause sure. It's, it's embarrassing. Your body. Social embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. You get. You can get it. Yeah. You, it's you, true. It's true. Yeah. Fear of making a fool of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We all. We all go through that. Um, now, if. If Jesus came back this year, would he rather be a programmer or a ninja warrior? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, I think he'd be both. <laughs> a ninja programmer. <laughs> Does that mean I have a Christ complex? Uh, maybe. No, but uh, I can see arguments for both. But uh, mm. I guess uh, if I was to a answer that like seriously, very seriously, yeah. more likely on the programmer mm. side of things because. I think technology is what is 
really driving humanity forward. And uh, these, our life in technology are just now intertwined and getting more and more and more so. And that's only going to get deeper and weirder and um, I'm not even coming up with the right adjectives here, but it's it's going to be expanding. It's not what we know today. It's yeah, gonna be there's going to be cybernetics, uh, artificial intelligence. There's going to be uh, uh, augmentation, you know, personal body augmentation, uh, you know, uh, machinery implanted into us, chips and so forth. If you watch the TV show Black Mirror, for example, which is you know a very dark take on these subjects, but at the same time. Um, in many ways very honest like they explore some of these concepts in ways that they very well well actually could play out in, in, in our future yeah so, something so the, the, all of these things are reshaping our notions of philosophy and and culture and and uh spirituality for example like let's take an example uh ray kurzweil uh believes that the singularity will happen by the year 2048, I think that's the date, the actual date that he gives. Uh-huh. I could what be wrong what about is singularity? That. Uh, so that word has been used in different contexts, but the way that uh, Kurzweil uses it is that that is the moment when um, humanity will have figured out how to live forever, how to augment their body, um, reprint organs, whatever it is that needs to be done that uh, makes life extension infinite. So if you can live up until that point in time and you have enough money to be able to do this, theoretically, we may have a new batch of human beings that will live thousands of years. Arguably, they're walking around us today, you know, at least uh, uh, ones that will have a less, that a less span of, of yeah. triple, uh, quadruple what we have now. Yeah. This isn't a pipe dream, I don't think. I think mm-hmm. this is very realistic to think this way. Mm-hmm. So if we start living 300, 400, 500 years, 1,000, 2,000 years, what does that do to change our notions of spirituality and um, the meaning of life and all these other things that we've already shaped in our minds? Now, all, if all of a sudden a human being becomes an infinite being, or a, a being that never dies, then how is that going to reshape our philosophies about life and our meaning and, and what life is all about, right? You become a timeless entity. Infinite age. So programming, uh, computer programming and science, bioengineering, things like this, all of these different fields are going to be shaping the destiny of human beings. And if human beings are spiritual beings, and if Jesus Christ is uh, the Savior and the Son of God, and, and he is the, uh, the leader of the flock, then I think that he would be involved in this process. He'd rather be a programmer. He would rather be the person shaping this in the way the that, you know, yeah, the architect of the matrix, uh-huh. right? Or something. Uh, let's shift gears for fun. Even though you seem to be on the right spiritual path, and by some accounts, a near-perfect <laughs> role model. Uh, what are your top pet peeves? 
That's very petty. gracious of you, by the way. <laughs> let's get let's get petty. What are your top pet peeves? Rapid fire. Top pet peeves. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, rolling the toilet paper the wrong way. My God. What's the right way? The right way ought to be obvious, but in case you know anyone listening doesn't get that, it's with the it's overrolled, not underrolled. So uh -huh. it's with the the next sheet to be taken on off on top, facing, facing you, you, facing okay. you. Okay. Yeah, that is Everyone. that is the proper way. Let that be known from here throughout eternity, yeah. and for the future eternal beings of humanity. Every, everyone listening, yes. please stop. Overroll. Think for one <laughs> second yeah, before you change the toilet paper. Should, I'll add my uh, very related pet peeve is people not changing the roll but putting it on top of the used roll. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. yeah, that's a bad one. Yeah. That is bad. Yeah. Uh, then now, now uh, to remind you, we talked about touching the monitor with your finger. Oof. As you. Yes, point at yes. something, explaining something, especially when, when it's not your laptop or your, your desktop. You know what? Your your computer is your um, Petri dish for however you, you want to use it. But if you're in someone else's computer, don't ever touch their monitor if you want to show them something. Yeah. There, there's nothing to be gained and everything to be lost. This is the new commandments, by the way, yeah, yeah, of, the, the, of the ninja jutsu. We're inscribing this now in virtual stone. Okay. What else? <laughs> misnaming things like when people say ATM machine mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay now just for everyone listening ATM already stands for automatic teller machine so you don't need to say machine it's done it's already in there I need to go to the ATM but if you want to be end of clever, sentence yeah call it automatic <laughs> ATM for example or, <laughs> <laughs> now you could give some advice to those who want to train while traveling, keep in shape, and just closing words. Yeah, you could state your your mission. Like, uh, what are you doing all this for? I'll, I'll add one on there too. Um, first of all, I would say that if you're not doing something physical as part of your regimen, your daily regimen, hobby, uh, routine, if you're not exercising in some way, get to it. I think that is one of the most important things a person can do in their life. Stay healthy. Keep moving. If you don't keep moving, one day you won't be able to. So I intend to keep training until I can't, till I'm in my 80s, 90s, you know? Like, I, I'll do whatever I can until the very end because I want to keep mobile, I want to keep active, I want to be able to use my body. And you'll feel better. You'll feel better throughout your days. You may even find that you require less external... Um, inputs, external stimulants to make you feel good. You'll require less booze, less smoking cigarettes, less drugs, less TV by just exercising and feeling better naturally. You'll improve the quality of your life drastically, so get to it. Do some sort of, sort of exercise. Find what it is. You don't have to go to a gym. You don't have to be a runner. You don't have to ride a bike. But, but experiment. Get creative. See what's out there and find what's right for you. Can you give a practical, like minimal uh, semi-daily routine that anyone can do right now? Yeah, so um, you can get started right away in your very own home. You don't need any equipment at all. If you have a floor, you can do complete full body workout. You can do push-ups, sit-ups, uh, squats, uh, burpees. Burpees is one of the best overall full body exercises that you don't need a bit of equipment for. 
Uh, you can Google all these things, by the way. Burpee. YouTube. B U R P. YouTube is great. Better than, yeah. Than yeah, yeah, better than better than Nomadic Ninja, by the way, because my my feed is not really instructional. It's more entertainment mm -hmm. value and yeah. uh, inspirational is kind of my angle. Um, but yeah, tons of resources on YouTube. Uh, look for calisthenics. The word calisthenics or home workout or body weight workout. Any of those things you can find. Uh, if you have a chair, you can use a chair for dips and, and do tricep things. You can put your leg up on it and do stretches or uh, squats. You can do step-ups on the chair where you're standing right up next to the chair. You put one leg up, you stand on, you, you thrust with that one leg and you come down on the other and then you switch, go back and forth. That's an excellent uh, leg workout. Um, planks, side planks. Uh, Geez, there's just so many things that you can do. Uh, just just look for home calisthenics. Search on YouTube. Yeah, if you if you think you only have 15 minutes, just literally put this in YouTube search bar. Uh, in the YouTube search bar, you put 15 minute workout at home, and you'll find at least. Yeah, sure. Great dozen. idea. Great idea. You will. Mm -hmm. um, there's also apps. You can you can get an app for free on your phone. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on iOS. I think it is. I have Android. It's called Swerkit. Uh, S W O R K I T. So it's like work it with an S. I, I like uh, fitness, fitness buddy. I think it's called. And there's also Fit, a new one called Fitbud. Fitbuds. Fitbud. Mm -hmm. Like like that bud. Oh yeah. Okay. Fitbud. Fitbud. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, I've got this other one called uh, Mad Bars. If you have access to like a street workout facility, um, you know, like a, a pull up, pull up bar. Um, dip bars. So if you have access to something like that, then you can get into more street workout style stuff. What's it called again? Mad Bars. M-A-D-B-A-R-Z. But uh, really, you can download one of these free apps. You don't even have to pay. They have paid versions that have extensive features. But the free version of Swerkit, uh, you can do a full body workout in however much time you want. You set the time. You tell it. I have 10 minutes, I have 15 minutes, I have 30 minutes. And then say go. Say what kind of workout you want, upper body, lower body, full body. And then you can mix, it'll mix and match the exercises for you. Mm -hmm. And you'll just do this circuit training. Uh, and in 30 minutes you're done. And then you've gotten a pretty good workout actually. In, in closing, let's, um, I guess, summarize your, your mission why are you why are you doing what you're doing? What, what's the goal? Uh, what are the milestones ahead? Okay, yeah, good. Um, so my next big goal right now and a dream of mine for the last two years is to compete on American Ninja Warrior. I just submitted my application a few days ago, um, January 2nd, and I will know any time between now and the next few weeks if I'm accepted. Uh, I'll get either the, the yay or the nay. So I'm kind of waiting here with bated breath um, on the answer for that. I think I made a pretty good application and a really good video, so I think my chances are decent. I, I have a unique story. You know, Nomadic Ninja is I, I'm pretty much the only one, as far as I know. Um, so that's, that's my big goal for now. And uh, even bigger than that, I intend to keep training and traveling the world. I would like my project to become even more of what it is. I'd like to gain more followers. I'd like to spread the word more. Uh, I'd like to possibly get into writing. Actually, that's one of the things that I do on my Instagram. I don't just post pictures. I actually write something very thoughtful. 
and uh, something very meaningful to me personally. I write about my experiences, I write about my process, I write about discoveries and, and motivational things that kind of help other people. So Instagram is your blog, not, not, not Yeah, it really sharing. is, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It, you actually use it as a blogging platform, not only, not metaphorically, you write a lot in your descriptions. I do, mm -hmm. I do, yeah. And uh, I'd like to go deeper with that. Actually, that's another one of my um, lifelong ambitions is to write. So I'd like to write more in my life, and, I, and you know, part part of the thing about writing is, it's not just about how good of a writer you are, but you have to kind of uh, create a product that people like, and you have to have a following. So uh, I'm kind of trying to, you know, working on building a following on Instagram, and hopefully from that I can ex start extrapolating some bigger messages and actually write something uh, of larger significance and volume out of that. That is one of my uh, greater ambitions from this. And uh, actually, I would like to shoot for being a professional athlete. It, it, the Ninja Warrior sport itself, not just American Ninja Warrior, the TV show, but the sport is blossoming. Mm -hmm. And it's happening all over the world. It's a, it's a totally new movement and a totally new um, uh, ex sport. It, it's an exercise mode. You don't have to be a fan of this sport. show. Uh, Absolutely not. Yeah. To be a part of it. There are amateur leagues now sprouting up everywhere. There's there's one in the United States. There are full blown competitions with cash prizes that are um, not run by American Ninja Warrior nor Sasuke. They are run by independent organizations, people that got involved in the Ninja Warrior sport several years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, uh, Wolfpack Ninjas. These are some of the most well known American Ninja Warriors. They have their own little team called the Wolfpack Ninjas. They've got the Wolfpack Ninja Tour now. They go in different places in the United States and they have these competitions and there's actual cash prizes. So you can, you can train and become an expert uh, proficient at this sport and actually win money. And I think the possibilities of getting sponsorship uh, are starting to come out a lot more now too. Actually, um, uh, since that came up, I am technically sponsored. I have a, a company that gives me a paycheck right now. Uh, the name is Made's Banana Flower Bakery. They're in uh, Changu, Bali. Someone that I met that I, when I was spending time in Bali and got to know the owner. Uh, his name's Michael. And he uh, offered this uh, you know, kind of arrangement that uh, they would sponsor me, uh, I would invest part in the company, and I, I would also kind of work for them and promote them. Uh, so hey, this Let's is also a little bit of promotion right here. Yeah, you know? uh, plug. Okay. Yeah, this okay. is this is part of my job. Mm -hmm. But uh, the the possible the potential for actually being a sponsored athlete now by a, a big company like uh, Red Bull, Under Armour, Reebok, uh, Merrill, something like that. Um, these are actually really starting to happen. So I would like to get better at Ninja Warrior and either be a sponsored athlete or a, a speaker or an educator or something in this sport. I think that'd be a great possible um, change in my path and I'd like to say as much as I love computers and programming in the, in the direction of technology um, I don't I don't think that I personally can continue doing it and that's one of the reasons why I am take, do, going on the path that I'm on now is because I'm trying to find a new direction in life uh, this this path burned me out and it, it wasn't sustaining and then this lifestyle that I'm doing now I'm finding to be more self-sustaining uh, in a physical uh, health and, and mental aspect. Awesome. Well, I think it's a good uh, stopping point. Uh, in
thank you very much for coming on the show and helping me revive it from a, from a long break. Uh, continued success. Glad. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. And uh, I want to say I've actually been a big fan of the show up until now. I've listened to every episode. Thank you. Yeah, they're all really good. <laughs> there aren't very many, but this is number six, and I'm so happy to bring it back after perhaps uh, six months. Uh, I think it's about six months of not doing anything with it. So mutual appreciation is expressed here. And um, check back with you after you achieve uh, new, new heights. Thank you very much again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye.